Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. I think I told you last week that I'm not traveling home for the holidays. I'm going to stick it out in L.A. I've traveled some during the pandemic, but the airports are so crowded Even if there wasn't a global pandemic, I probably wouldn't go home. I didn't go home last year either. And I've spent tons of holidays by myself. And when I do, it's really just another day. I don't feel any ways about it. But this year, (laughs) this year, I found this lobster truck not so far from my house. It's called Lobster Domus. They have the most beautiful, succulent-looking, amazing lobster. I got, I got two orders. I couldn't choose. There was this salt and pepper fried lobster with garlic noodles. And then there was another lobster that was just garlic and butter drizzle. And I, I wasn't going to choose, so I just got both. So that's going to be my Thanksgiving dinner. The other part of my Thanksgiving is putting together all the shipments for Ratchet and Respectable. I'm going to put the merchandise on sale next week. Just like last week when I asked that you follow my social media, at Demetria L. Lucas, I'm going to announce the date sooner than later. I'll give you 24-hour notice. It's going to be at 1 p.m. on one of those days. This is my first foray into merchandising. Shout out to everyone who sells products online. If your site is beautiful and user-friendly, I know now the vast amount of work you've done on the back end to get it that way. I'm going to stay, this merchandising life, I think I might have to stick with being a writer, y'all. I have help, and we are getting this done right and proper, but y'all, and I'm happy to do it. No complaints. I chose this, but it's a lot. It's a lot that goes into it. So if you buy merchandise from a website, especially a small business, and it's effective and user-friendly and fast and done with a smile, understand those people are burning the midnight oil and doing the Lord's work. For that to happen for you. There is so much that goes into this process. So I have a great episode for you this week. My friend John Murray is back. He's one of my favorite people on the planet and my mother's too. My mother loves him and he loves my mother. He calls her the queen. John's been on before, but if you didn't hear that episode, which you should go back and listen to because it's always a good time with us. But John and I knew of each other. We did an Essence Festival press junket one year and ended up sitting next to each other on the bus. And it was love after first conversation. He is a wonderful, fun, vastly knowledgeable man. John just has this encyclopedic knowledge of entertainment and pop culture that goes back for decades. If you ever tell him anything, if he ever reads anything, he never forgets it. He's also interviewed like everyone. I did celebrity entertainment very, very early in my career, and then I switched over to dating and relationships. But John has been in the celebrity world for maybe 20 years. He knows everyone. He's interviewed everyone. And for today, I get to interview him. There's so much going on in the culture right now with talent, artists who are battling with networks or streaming services or co-stars or the public. It seems to be a trend. I wanted to talk with John because he and I are both on the talent side of entertainment and we've both seen a lot of contracts, signed a lot of contracts, some of them better than others, some of them for shows that went well, some of them for shows that never saw the light of day. So we kind of have like a a vested interest um, in making sure artists are well compensated and we have some insight on how to handle conflicts um, that can sometimes come up between artists and networks or colleagues and, and things like that. And so I've told you about John and his social side, but let me give you his official bio. John Murray is a Washington, D.C.-based American TV commentator, pop culture expert, media personality, and social media influencer. He's best known for hosting TV shows for the Travel Channel, Epics, and NFL Network, as well as appearing on cable news channels like CNN, HLN, and MSNBC. When I was in D.C. and I was doing HLN and MSNBC commentating, (laughs) whenever I would show up to the green room, John Murray would be sitting in there waiting to go on. We've had the pleasure of being on the same show, but not being commentators in the same block. 
which I think would be amazing TV. That's just me. So without further ado, please welcome John Murray to Ratchet and Respectable. Hello. What up, my friend? How are you? Listen, even in unprecedented, perilous times, there's so much to be grateful for. Look, folks have their health. Folks are alive. Folks have their families, even if they might be distant this year. Some people. As a man that loves to sleep, this season of life, I've never just woken up in the morning and just been so grateful to wake up in all the days of my life. Yes. What are you doing for Thanksgiving? I will be in the house with my mom, and we're doing a family Zoom, which will be fun. Uh, She's very excited about that because that's giving her a reason to kind of put on some fancier clothes and some makeup for a change. Though sometimes I'll take her out on Sunday errands and she gets a little jazzy, you know. It's going to be a rainy day in the Washington, D.C. area, and so... I'll be chilling after the family Zoom. I love it. I also have a family Zoom, which I'm really excited about because, like, we're like my parents are in D.C. and then I've got my dad's side in Mississippi, and then there's a bunch of us out here in California too. I have a Thanksgiving menu. I found this amazing downtown food truck: salt and pepper lobster and garlic lobster with garlic noodles. It sounds delicious, but you couldn't find a turkey anywhere in L.A. I don't eat turkey. Oh God! Oh God! I haven't had meat in over 20 years. I forgot. And you still haven't had a cocktail, have you? Oh, I yeah, I have cocktails. I just don't have meat. Oh, okay. So you backslid into the uh, to the libations. I backslid into the libations like over a year ago. <laughs> I should have known that would have came calling again. <laughs> <laughs> but friend, I want to talk to you about all the entertainment things that are going on right now with like Dave Chappelle and Janet Hubert and Monique and even Shonda Rhimes. There's so yes. much going on with with um with people battling with with networks or streaming services, and some of those people we support wholeheartedly, and some of those people not so much. And I'm trying to figure out like what is the difference there. Dave Chappelle um came out yesterday and he said that he actually said on Saturday Night Live when he hosted a couple weeks ago that Chappelle's show was running on Netflix and he wasn't seeing a dime from that, which people were very surprised by. And then yesterday he said that he went to Netflix and he was like, you know, I'm not very happy with this arrangement. And Netflix has a huge deal with him, I think 60 million or so. And Netflix was like, you know what, Dave, we want you to be happy. We want to do good business with you. So they pulled Chappelle's show from the streaming platform, which is kind of unheard of. Very unheard of. Listen, I did an interview uh, back in September with a TMZ podcast called Piece of the Pie where I talked about my concern in in seeing that I didn't believe that Hollywood saw the value in black men. And and the whole piece was centered in this idea that in the hosting space, which is what I'm in, there are only like a safe six of black men that have every single job. And I'm not going to spend too much time there, but I'm using that to set up the fact that Netflix as a streaming platform clearly sees the value in Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle has one of the most groundbreaking deals as a talent at Netflix. It's a huge uh, uh, double digits in the millions. And so he's done these three specials for them. The specials broke records for Netflix. Clearly, they're engaging him in future business. And them licensing the Chappelle show and getting the algorithms of the streaming from that clearly doesn't match up to what they get by these specials of this original content that he's creating for them. So the fact that they took that off, it speaks volume of the value that they see in Dave Chappelle. And I really hope that more black men, more people of color in general, will be able to be in positions where we can say what we want, have the value that people will make decisions, even when uncomfortable, to benefit us, and can move the needle forward to also help other people in the way that he's educating people about these bad deals that you can get early in your career. I watched Unforgiven late last night and, you know, Dave is just like a master storyteller. And he was like, when I signed this deal with Comedy Central, I was I was 28. I was married. I had a young kid like I was desperate. I needed money. Entertainment contracts are notoriously tricky. He was like, you know, the layperson reading them. You have to hire a lawyer to understand what all these terms mean. Streaming when he signed that that contract didn't exist. We, we talks about himself, but I think a lot of people out here may not be as vocal. They don't have like the power of a Dave Chappelle, but a lot of people are in really bad deals where like their face is everywhere, but they ain't making no money on it. Exactly. You know, and, and he focused on a word and it's a word that always been my favorite word, even before I got into the music industry. So growing up in church, I would sometimes go to these live gospel concerts and someone would come out and do audience prep before the concert would start. 
and they would say, you know, your applause, your likeness, everything that we use in this concert, we can use in perpetuity. Perpetuity. And if I ever went to a concert and they didn't use the word perpetuity, I'd be mad because it became like that little, it was like a bit for me. I had to hear that word when I went to events that were recording. And so it's a word that I've always gravitated to throughout the years and had an understanding of it by the time I got into the business just because of uh, the, the innocent kid that would go to concerts and hear the word. But I'm glad that Dave is teaching that word to a lot of people and in the context in which it can work against talent in the entertainment business because there are so many scenarios where you sign deals where people can use your name and likeness, likeness for the rest of your life and you have nothing to do about it. Your face pops up somewhere or your show. Well, you're a model who signs over uh, photo shoot rights and mm. they can use the perpetuity. So now all of a sudden you're on uh, an erectile dysfunction box or a vaginal leakage. or And you're like, wait a minute, I was posing for Vogue. I didn't want to do vaginal leakage. Let me tell you, there have been so many stories, particularly with the growth and expansion of social media, that who owns the photo? If you're walking down the street and you're all by yourself and there's this thing that you want to capture a photo of it. Excuse me, sir, can you take this photo of me? The person who takes the photo actually owns your photo, even without you signing those contracts into perpetuity. So there's, you know, there's a lot that we can unpack, but I do think that Dave Chappelle really has enlightened the audience to the struggles of a talent in a way that I don't think a lot of other people who have been griping about various aspects of the entertainment industry have been effective in, in conveying similar messaging. I have a question, so I want to be like devil's advocate because there are a portion of people who who watched Unforgiven or heard about, you know, Dave Chappelle's back and forth with, with Netflix and HBO Max, and they're like, yo, this is a millionaire who doesn't need the money complaining about millionaire problems wanting more money? Like, why should I care? Well, you know, I, I say to anybody who has felt not valued on their job, invalidated in their profession, anybody who ever felt like their gift, talent, or skill set was overlooked or taken advantage of, you should have a level of empathy for what this man is saying. He's not asking you to make him richer. He's just asking you not to support content that's making a corporation richer and his family, his kids, his grandkids, the generations to follow him will never benefit from this art that he created in a pure place, but he has never been able to necessarily eat off of it. And so if you want to be valued in your life, if you want to make sure that you're aligned with being treated the way that you work, then maybe you should heed the request of a talent that you follow, that you enjoy, that you consume, and not necessarily partake in his reruns on platforms that are benefiting a huge conglomerate and not him directly. A lot of people have great sympathy for, for Dave Chappelle. They feel him, they see him, they want him to win. Why don't we feel the same way about Monique? Because Monique also has actually a current, I was gonna say past tense, but a current lawsuit with Netflix about not being valued. Think if I get the details right, and you know more about this than I do, I think. But the details of her lawsuit are Netflix came to her and said they wanna do a special. And she was very excited about it because Netflix uh, notoriously pays very, very well, like 20 million, 30 million. I think Chris Rock has 50. So she was looking forward to what their offer was going to be. And they offered her 500,000. And she was like, no, like you're, you're lowballing me. And when she said no to the offer, they didn't come back and renegotiate, which is really what the entertainment industry does. Like there's, there's usually a back and forth, but they said no and they just walked away. And she was like, you're doing this to me because I'm black and because I'm a woman. She filed a lawsuit. Netflix tried to get it thrown out. The court said otherwise. So there's something to her case that at least the courts want to hear her out. But people haven't been very sympathetic to Monique. Like she called for a boycott of Netflix. She said they're not treating black women right. They don't respect my talent. They don't respect black women. Michaela Cole, she had an issue with Netflix. She wanted to take I May Destroy You, which was a hit for HBO, critically acclaimed at least. She tried to go for Netflix and they wouldn't give her a decent deal. So she took it elsewhere. Is this an issue that black women are having at Netflix or is this industry standard? Let me start here. So, and, and this is probably what will happen when Monique gets her day in court with Netflix. The highest paid creator, that's a woman behind TV programming, producer, development, writer. The highest paid person in Hollywood right now that's on the creative side is not Ryan Murphy. It's not David E. Kelly. It's not any of the legendary TV executives and producers that we all have known and loved and seen their content. The highest paid person 
on the creative side in Hollywood right now is a black woman named Shonda, Shonda Rhimes. And where's her home? Netflix. A black woman is the highest paid creative in all of Hollywood, and it's because of Netflix. And so when you look at that and that scenario alone, it completely eradicates everything that Monique is saying. Now, Netflix, as it pertains to their comedy offers, it really comes down to algorithms. Streaming platforms benefit by people getting subscriptions and then watching the content. New subscriptions is what pushes them to continue to do deal and expand the options that they offer to the consumers. So when Monique was in talks with Netflix to go do a comedy special, they came to scout her special because they come and see what is it that you're going to be offering in this special. Let's get us the idea of what you have for us. They went to scout her special at her own admission at a comedy club. And I've actually spoken to some of the people at Netflix that said the comedy club was not sold out. When they went to scout Dave Chappelle, whose first deal was a reported $60 million, and when they went to scout Chris Rock, whose first deal was a reported $40 million, they went to scout them at arenas. So who's going to bring the unique viewers and enhance our algorithm? Who's going to get us more subscribers at Netflix? The person who has people in arenas or the person who can't sell out a comedy club? So a lot of Monique's argument about Netflix, and it's it, it, you know it's a conflated argument that she and that husband of hers have been perpetuating, is that I should get deal offers based on all the awards that I won for one movie, but that was an award for acting. And if she had not ruined her acting career, maybe the offers that she would get as an actress would be in line with all the statues that she has on a mantle at her house. But as a comic. We haven't heard Monique tell a joke in about a decade because all we see from her is ramblings and anger and lashing out and the tearing down of successful black people. Oprah Winfrey, Tyler Perry, Lee Daniels, Will Packer, Kim Whitley, Cheryl Underwood, Lottie Dottie, everybody. If, if your residency that she lied and said she was the first black woman to have a Las Vegas residency when Marsha Warfield had been on the Vegas Strip for two years. That quietly went away because she couldn't sell tickets there. It, it was such a dismal failure that the whole club in the SLS Hotel has closed down. So I say all of that to say that if Monique could put their energy into complaining and griping and, and filing frivolous lawsuits into the art because she is a talented actress, I can't vouch for the comedy right now because I haven't heard her tell a joke since Jesus was in the manger. But if she could focus on her art and her talent and, and maybe make some changes in her personal life, maybe she could get a career back on track. Does that help you, Demetria? Does that help you at all? I mean, it gives context. It does. All right. You said an interesting phrase and you said the problems that Monique has been having in her career. And it goes back, I think the beginning of it was with Precious and she and Lee Daniels and the producers of Precious, which were Oprah and Tyler Perry, they got into a beef because Monique didn't want to do international press. And she was like, this is work, but you're not paying me to work. And I want to pursue other projects. I want to be at home with my family. And you want me to go overseas and do all this promotional work, which is industry standard, but you're not paying me for that. That, that is a, a, a piece of it. And so, and full disclosure, because some of your listeners may be aware at some point, I got entangled into Monique's public beef because anybody who presents factual, actual content and talks logically at some point faces her ire. And her and her husband have lashed out at me multiple times. I ended up in a viral video kind of clapping back at them and did a radio interview with them for Cafe Mocha Radio where they wanted to take me to task, but I just presented facts and figures and let's just say the interview didn't go very well for them. And they asked the radio show to take it off the internet and never air it on in a broadcast form and all that stuff again. So I, there's a little bit of history there. Yet and still, you know me well enough to know that I can always just present the facts as they are and call a thing a thing, whether I love you, like you, whatever. Just putting that out there for anybody who may be listening and be like, uh-uh, eat too close to this. Here's the truth of the matter. The way Hollywood works is that when you do a film, you take a couple of months and you go promote it. You do TV interviews, radio interviews. Now you do dot-com interviews, podcasts streaming shows, newspapers, whatever it takes to make sure that people uh, pre-pandemic could come sit their butts in the seats to see your film, you would do that. And that's an extension of your responsibilities. You're not paid to do that. Tom Cruise doesn't, doesn't get paid. Uh, Selma Hayek doesn't get paid. 
Uh, I even did an interview with Will Smith about this very thing. And he says, no, your last day on a film project isn't when they say cut. Uh, that's a wrap. Your last day is after you do your last interview to ensure that this movie opens well and is a success. Because if the movie opens well, then it shows that you as an actor can put people in seats and that adds to your value, which increases your ability to get out of the work because people realize that you're a bankable talent. And the more you can become a bankable talent, the more it increases your overall quote. So if I was getting $250,000 for this film, and now all of a sudden I was in a blockbuster, my agents can go back and get $750,000 for my next film. That's just basic Hollywood working principle. Monique did Precious, which is an independent film, and trust me, lots of big talented stars have won major awards doing these art house indie films where they made very little money but the acclaim that came from the project thrust them into a place where they were able to capitalize off of it. Monique wanted Precious after it had been acquired by a studio and after Tyler Perry and Oprah Winfrey came on as executive producers just to kind of undergird the film with additional money to get it through its award show campaign to thrust these people into stardom and to make sure that people saw this riveting story of sexual abuse of a mother and a child and a disenfranchised woman. Monique wanted Lionsgate, and not just for international appearances, but even the U.S. ones. She was asking them for $100,000 uh, an appearance every time she showed up to do interviews and panels and things at film festivals. It was an egregious ask, some liking it to Hollywood extortion, and so the studio just stopped using her on the press run. So my friend, Sherry Shepard, who was also in the film, actually stepped into the role because her profile had been heightened on The View, and they said, we just need another big name to show up since the star of the movie isn't here. Things got so bad, Demetria, that I remember the day of the premiere in Los Angeles. I happened to be out there for it. They had an event at the Pacific Design Center that day. Backstage, you could see all the cast members they had developed a bond. At this point, they had basically been on a promotional tour together, with the exception of Monique, who didn't show up. And I'll talk about the most egregious thing she did with the Toronto Film Festival, because that's one of the biggest uh, aspects of the story. But they're all joking and talking. They have a chemistry, and Monique is standing to the side because she can't relate to the camaraderie they've developed on the road. And so I don't know what happened between the stage, the panel, and when it was over. But all I know is I was walking to the car service that had brought me to the event, and I heard the two executives from Lionsgate say, when we are done with this film, she'll never work at this studio again. So that had nothing to do with Tyler or Oprah or anybody. The powers that be were so disgusted by all of her actions throughout the course of promoting this movie, they had vowed they would never work with her again. Uh, well, taking it back a little bit, a lot of big films are launched at the Toronto Film Festival. So the beginning of a film, like let's say uh, um, uh, A Bell in Brooklyn becomes this, this wonderful film, you would launch it historically at Sundance. And then a, a studio says, oh my God, this is the best indie film we've ever seen. We're going to pick it up and, and, and put it in theaters for you. And then they're like, oh my God, it's critically acclaimed. There's Oscar buzz for Demetrius' film. Well, one of the, the big places for you to substantiate that Oscar buzz is at the Toronto Film Festival. So Monique decided she did not want to go to the Toronto Film Festival to promote the film, which was majorly taboo. Oprah Winfrey herself called Monique and said, you're missing one of the biggest opportunities of your life. There's a room of international media that wants to hear your story. This is where you become a star. I will send my private plane to pick you up and bring you to Toronto so that you don't mess up this moment. And Monique told Oprah Winfrey, baby, uh, my husband told them people what it would take for me to get there and they're not willing to do it. So I'm sitting in the bed eating bonbons, watching Curious George with my twins. So I'm not gonna be able to come. And that's when they realized this woman is a self-saboteur because the what it would take for her to be there was the $100,000 that her husband had asked the studio for. That is why Monique is in the situation that she's in. And because she then poo-pooed the Oscars and the whole award show season, the entire campaign season, 
it created a disdain for her. She showed a disrespect for it. She would do constant interviews where she said, I don't care about Oscars and Golden Globes. All I care about is the NAACP Image Award. You can care about the NAACP Image Award, but you shouldn't disrespect the institution that could provide work for you. And my concern at the time wasn't so much about this exceptionally talented woman who had ruined her career despite the fact these very successful and dynamic black executives and creatives and and, and even people like Whoopi Goldberg who she turned on and talked about like a dog for trying to help her. I wasn't so concerned that she was going to ruin her career. I was concerned about Hollywood turning a, a deaf ear to all the other women of color who they didn't want to see because Monique had set such a bad precedent. Luckily, the Octavias and the Violas and all these other women were still able to thrive and cut through and went on to win Oscars, and they're all doing great projects. And, you know, Taraji Henson was nominated for an Oscar. So many of the other black women in the business got it and never tried to extort the business for fast money. Can we talk about this husband? Because... Many people refer to him as, as that husband. When I was writing about Dave Chappelle and Janet Hubert, I think I mentioned, this was on my Facebook page, I mentioned Monique as well. And several of my writer friends who, who write for the big publications all had behind the scenes stories of not so much Monique, it was the husband. Packer sent me a letter that was an exchange. And you know what? I'm going to tell you a story that the world doesn't know. It, it's pretty riveting. We might make some news today. This is a true story. The antics on the set of Almost Christmas, after that movie was over, the studio, Universal Pictures, that was behind that film, started pre-production on a little movie called Girls Trip. And guess who the president of the studio originally wanted for the Tiffany Haddish role? Really? Monique. I didn't know that. It's not public knowledge. It is now. Because she had acted so ugly on the set of Almost Christmas, because there was all the drama and the conflict, and at Will Packer's own admission, he had heard all the horror stories. Everybody warned him, don't work with her. But he said, it can't be that bad. I can work with the toughest of the divas. Oh, come on, I can handle her. She is, she's got to be misunderstood. We're going to relaunch her because the gift is so great. Yet and still... He, like everybody else, got a wake-up call that said, this is worse than you could ever imagine. So, yes, that husband of hers is part of the problem. He's helped shape the narrative and set the foundation, or in her own words, he's raising me. That's why I call him daddy. That's a whole separate. That's a whole other show. (laughs) But I will say this. We're talking about a grown-ass woman. I don't like to talk about grown people in the context of, they're being influenced by another person. And do you think if they got rid of this other person? At some point, you agree to go along with this line of thinking, these line of actions, and your life and your career has suffered from it. So when do you say, clearly we're doing something wrong? Because we're sitting at home like dogs hiding at the moon. But the truth of the matter is, the industry's moved on, and there have been a dozen plus black women who have stepped into those positions, even Tiffany Haddish, and thrived. By the way, Tiffany Haddish is somebody else who also did a very great deal at Netflix, and they paid her a great amount of money. And then Wanda Sykes, who also came out and initially supported Monique, supported her in the context of, if you're not happy with the offer that Netflix gave you, then do what I did and go somewhere else. Wanda Sykes at one point went to Netflix for an offer. They gave her a lower than expected offer. She went and did a special over at Epics. Then Wanda went on tour, where she went on tour and started doing the large size arena, uh, large size theaters that she plays. Netflix came and saw her new show and said, oh, she's playing to a larger audience. Wanda has a whole lot going on. This actually could be a benefit to our algorithms. And Wanda then did a deal at Netflix that was more comparable to what she was looking for, and now she even has a special there. So again, and if you could put the time and the energy into upping the audience and upping the art, you can get a great deal, no matter your race, at a Netflix. And unfortunately for Monique, she spent so much time and energy complaining about things that happened in 2010 that she doesn't realize that none of that really has a factor in this 2020 lifestyle. 
I want to address that and I want to sort of curve into a conversation about Janet Hubert and Will Smith on this or reuniting or making amends on this reunion special. I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this exactly. So let me just share some thoughts. I think sometimes bad things happen, your fault or otherwise, and people get stuck in a narrative and don't move on. Even with your history with Monique and some of the criticisms that you've made, multiple times you made clear to state that she's an amazing talent, that she's a great actress. Like, she's really good. Janet Hoover, I think, is the same thing. The only role I really know her from is Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, those first three seasons. But the talent is undeniable. These bad things happen professionally, and whether you want to say it's their fault or someone else's fault, I think there's probably some blame to go around in all cases. These things are usually not one person was wrong and one person was right. There's usually some gray in there. But I feel like sometimes... People get stuck in these narratives. I think in the case of Monique and Janet, they're more defined by their vitriol than they are for their work because they've kept the narratives going for so long. And there's a genuine hurt there. There's genuine pain. So I don't want to dismiss their anger or their experiences. I'm definitely not saying get over it. How do you get through that and redefine yourself into something, someone else and not just be defined by your bad experiences? This is a great question that you presented, and it also will be a great setup as we transition into Janet Hubert. So let me give you some examples of people who have faced very similar situations and how they've handled things. And and one, the, the first one that comes to mind is the comedian actress Kim Coles. Kim Coles was on the very first season of In Living Color, and uh, Keenan Ivy Wayans fired her. But instead of her being angry and going on the I Want to Destroy the Wayans World Tour, she just went back to focusing on the art. She ultimately booked in uh, Living Single, became a household name on a show that we're all begging for a reboot, and has had uh, a variety of other roles and opportunities as a result of the success that she had on Living Single. One of the things that I respect about Tamron Hall was very similar to Jan- Janet Hubert. She was offered a reduced role at NBC News. They decided they wanted to be in the business of Megyn Kelly. And they were getting rid of the third hour of today that had uh, Tamron and Al Roker and the other people working on it so that they could make way for Megyn Kelly. She wasn't happy about that. They told her you could go back to do your show at MSNBC and do contributing segments for the Today Show. But she decided, just like Janet Huber did, that she wanted to walk away because she was insulted by this idea that you offered me a reduced role on a platform that I enjoyed and helped to build out. And so she walked away. Now, she's been open about the fact that she wasn't happy. And she was open about the fact that she was that she walked away after being offered a reduced role and feeling as though she was fired, though she technically wasn't. But if she would have just went on the I Want to Destroy NBC tour and not focus on her talent, she wouldn't have been in a position to be the new talk show host on a talk show that bears her name. There are so many examples of people who had transitions and even personal things in their life, like Joe Marie Payton, the mother over at Family Matters, who was going through a major divorce during the last few seasons of the show. She actually, because her personal life was so challenged, wanted to quit the show two seasons before the show ended. And then things got so challenging for her, she left midway through the final season. But she never disrupted the cast. She never brought her personal life to work. She actually stayed on the show two years later than she wanted to, even though her personal life was miserable. And most of them didn't even know what she was going through because she was a professional. There are so many examples of people who have gone through obstacles and challenges, been fired, reduced, whatever the case, and they have continued to thrive and, and, and believed enough in the foundation of the art that they had established that they went on to have greater success. I think that is the perfect setup to where we're going in this Janet Hubert conversation. Janet Hubert, I remember her from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and I remember her equally as much for the the rantings and ravings about Will Smith and his wife and even his kids and Alfonso Ribeiro who played Carlton. Like that's kind of what I associate with her. Is there a place for, for black women to be rightfully angry? She did get done wrong. No? Jenny Huber was done wrong? You don't think so? No, I don't. Um, you know, here's the thing. It is very easy to buy into the big bad wolf philosophy. 
Will Smith is the huge Hollywood box office star. A black woman says that she was done wrong because she's dark-skinned, uses colorism, and for nearly three decades has been complaining and calling him, you know, everything but the Antichrist. It has been quite the spectacle. But just because that's the narrative that someone has put forth doesn't mean it's true. People who have cavalierly watched the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air reunion special, also, some of them think that that is what was being said. But as my mom would often say, the devil is sometimes in the detail. And Will Smith's admission, he said to her, I need to know your story because I'm not aware of what happened to you. Meaning that I've been oblivious to all the things that you've been saying and all that you have thrust upon me as the, the villain in this story that you have constantly presented. I don't know anything about any of it. To his credit, he also took accountability because he was a 21-year-old man, just able to buy a drink legally. Uh, he was uh, immature. He had some childhood trauma issues from his father, and he was coming into this show broke, which means that he was, once he decided to do it, everything was on the line. This was going to be my saving grace. He also um, had a failed album, so the acting was going to help become a transition out of music and he created this new family environment on this set and this woman who was a Juilliard trained actress who was a thespian you know she was like an Alvin Ailey dancer and she could sing it is clear from her own words that she thought this man was beneath her and the fact that he had created this this concert like environment this high energy environment on the set and and all of these things became problematic for her and at her own admission, at one point, she stopped speaking to the entire cast. Every single person on the show you stopped speaking to. Tatiana Ali was 13 years old when you stopped speaking to her. What did the 13-year-old do to you? Uh, Joseph Marcel, who uh, played uh, Jeffrey the butler on the mm. show, uh, had just revealed in an interview back in August that at one point, he's, he, he called Janet Hubert's actions on the set extreme greed. And he said he went to her and told her, what you're doing is going to cause you your job here. Stop doing what you're doing before you ruin your career. She didn't listen to him. She says, well, I was going through an abusive marriage and my home life was terrible and I just needed silence on the set. But you turned on all of your cast members. You disrupted the family flow. So I acknowledge that Will Smith takes accountability for the fact that you became a problem, you became a threat, because you disrupted the synergy and the camaraderie that we had on the set, and I did complain to the executives about the fact that this was the case with you. Will Smith didn't get her fired, and the network did not fire her. Because she seemed so miserable at work, they offered her a reduced role, and she said, I'm insulted. I'm not taking this. She was already insulted having to work with this snotty-nosed guy who was a rapper and had never acted in his life, but now she's insulted by the fact that her projection of that energy is why they wanted her in a reduced capacity. And James Avery, on the other hand, and again, the devils are in the detail, has a lot of the similar background as Janet Hubert. He was a thespian. He played his jazz. You know, he was a serious actor, but he saw value in Will Smith. He saw a young man working so hard and hustling so hard to learn this crime that he learned the entire script. And James Avery honed Will's skill. And then when he saw Will get to a place where he really embraced the craft and delivered that emotional scene about his father that we all still cry when we watch, he then affirmed him by saying, now that's being an actor. James Avery also knew that if I invest in this young man, he's destined for greatness. But if I invest in him, this show can thrive and it will thrust all of us to a place where we can be comfortable after it's said and done. So it's the tale of two worlds, the tale of two approaches, and it's not by happenstance that all of those cast members have maintained a rapport, that have they've spent time with Will on holidays and he has boxing parties and they all have gotten along and they get together and communicate on a regular basis. But Janet has been the sole person who has not been a part of any of that. I know people don't like this idea of having to face the reality that sometimes a black woman could actually have been her own worst enemy, 
But if you've watched Janet Huber online and not just the things she said and done to Will Smith, and listen, this is a woman I've interviewed in, in my career. This is a woman, I have her book that she wrote about him. I've read the book. She has said vicious, vile, and vulgar things about him. It's easy to fall into the narrative that the big box office star did something to this woman because he went on to greatness and, and, and she just complained for 30 years. But I also implore people to not completely buy into that narrative that she was blacklisted, she never worked it. This woman has at least 30 some credits on her IMDb, which is one of the platforms we go to see where people work in Hollywood after the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I saw her because at one point I was into the soap opera, One Life to Live, you know? And she was on that show for, for a bunch of episodes. So this woman worked after the Fresh Prince, but I can understand why a lot of people probably were gun-shy on hiring her, because if you follow her on social media and you saw these rants and rages, rants and rages that she had, why would you want her on your set or in your professional environment? I say she was done wrong because she left the show. It was big conversation at the time because everyone loved Aunt Viv. After she leaves, Will Smith does this interview and he says that she wanted it to be the Aunt Viv of Bel Air and he paints her as difficult on set. He seems to have taken first jab in the media. Her version is he's this Hollywood star who's now painted her as this difficult woman. So it made it hard for her to work. She wasn't able to take care of her family. It really affected her life, according to her says something about you publicly, do you not have a right to respond to them? Do you not have a right to defend yourself? Yes, you do have a right to defend yourself. But if you are making the same defense or that defense shifts from you clarifying what actually happened on a job and you attacking a man's kids, attacking a man's wife, you just saying unspeakable things vile, vicious, profanity-laced things about this person, if you can't understand why your career may have had some road bumps, despite the fact, and I just counted, there are 35 jobs that she had after the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, multiple soap operas, several Tyler Perry shows, Disney shows, she was on Gilmore Girls. This idea that she didn't work is, is, is a bit far-reaching. No, you didn't book a series regular job again. But you showed up on a lot of series. It's like 35 of them that I'm looking at. Sometimes we fall into these overarching narratives. Um, um, and I know that there are people who are unhappy with their life or they may have felt like they were wronged by somebody. Um, I had a conversation with a, with a very good friend of mine who initially kind of said, lashed out at Will Smith because of Janet Hubert, uh, you know, after watching the special. But then when we talked about it, she acknowledged that her own battles with colorism made this story a trigger for her. And she acknowledged, well, Janet Huber really was probably a problem. And so I think people need to really, like, take a moment and look inside and see where their outbursts and where their connection to this story comes from and make sure that they're looking at this through the proper lens. I will say this. Um, I'm no Will Smith apologist, but most people that you meet in the Hollywood industry will tell you that not only is he one of the most professional people that you've ever worked with, but he's a genuinely kind person. It's, it, you're hard-pressed to find anybody, that, with, with the exception of Janet Hubert, that has a bad story about him. At his own admission, he's worked really hard to foster that type of image in this industry. And so I think part of the reason why he wanted to have this closure with Janet Hubert uh, where he took on a lot of the responsibility for how, why and how she felt the way she did, even though he had a very small impact on why she was in that circumstance. I don't know most people that find the Janet Hubert narrative to be an accurate one. And it makes for great headlines as a sensationalized story. But again, I, I do notice that after this has happened, she actually has been clapping back at people online, uh, telling them that everybody's in a good space, because I do think... Now, for the first time in her life, she realizes that her entire approach was wrong. And if she would like to finally work more than she has over the last few years, then the best way for her to do it is to, to stop the charades and the antics. And not just with Will Smith, because the woman did some clapbacks about Kenya Moore on Twitter that were vicious and vile, too. Janet Hubert is no shrink and vile. I would actually say that I don't know what she did learn, if anything. Because one of the things that struck me, and Janet Hubert never really took accountability for her role in any of it. I do think that, that Will should not have taken it to the press. 
And I do feel that whatever was happening in her, her family life, like these are reasons that she may have been behaving the way that she was on set, but you didn't tell anybody. And so people didn't know. They just thought you were being difficult. But she's lashed out many, many times throughout the year. So if, even if Will Smith, you know, he goes and makes this thing public, he says, you know, disparaging things about her in this interview. She's continued to like go after him for 27 years. And those rantings are what have defined her. And dare I say that that's probably paid, played a bigger role in the perception of her as difficult than anything Will, said, Will Smith said all those years ago. But she seemed not to take any accountability for that. Like she just wanted Will to apologize for his piece in it, but no one else. Like she, she doesn't target the network executives. She doesn't say anything about Quincy Jones or Benny Medina. It's always like Will Smith, Will Smith, Will Smith. She said, I'm sorry for, you know, the things that I've said, but it was kind of like a, a passing, like, oh, we're going to hug now. But I was just like, if you don't take any accountability from, for, what you, for your role in it, do you even know your role in it? And are you really going to change? That's an emotional, healthy observation there, Demetria. And that is the type of detail that most people don't buy into. Because the average person or the cavalier viewer would say, oh, she's not taking accountability because she didn't do anything. No, she did a lot. And remember, we've, we're focusing on Will because she put a lot of her, uh, her attacks on Will. But she also attacked Alfonso Rivera. Uh, several years ago at a festival, they asked him about her. He said, I usually never address this woman, but I'll be honest with you guys. And he was, he said she became a terror on our set and wrapped it up as to say, you know, it speaks for itself and I don't want to speak about her again. Then she came and said just awful things about him. And like, I don't even want to repeat some of the stuff she says, because it's really, it's really vile and, and, and vicious. Like it's, it's it, for a woman who comes of her pedigree and her background and, and, and who has sold this story that I'm this disenfranchised essence type woman. Like, she talking like a woman that reads Hustler magazine. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Again, but everybody has the same story. Is everybody lying? When your actions have spoken louder than the narrative that you have shared on social media for 30 years, is everybody lying? I wish Janet Hubert the best. I, Hollywood loves nothing better than a comeback story. Robert Downey Jr., Mickey Rourke, so many people have hit rock bottom and was thrown aside, cast away for whatever the reason. And when they have these comeback stories, Hollywood goes, yes, I want Janet Hubert to have a comeback story, but I don't ever want her to be in a position again where she can't take accountability for her actions and she projects her anger on someone that she did not get along with for various reasons. And then they went on to have superstardom because that's the real reason that she has a problem with Will Smith. Will Smith has the career that she always dreamed of embodying. Do black women in Hollywood get comebacks? I mean, after uh, Kim Coles was fired from that show, she had a big comeback. Uh, when you look over at The View, Barbara Walters and them called Star Jones difficult. They said she was a terror. She was this, she was that. And Star went on to do other great things in television. And let's also be clear here. Katherine Heigl is a white woman, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed white woman. And she was difficult on the set of Grey's Anatomy. And, and, and because of a black woman, she got fired. And because of a black woman, oh, I think she asked off the show. But then it was made known that she was difficult on the show, and it impacted her ability to work. We're in a business now where there is a surplus of talent. Everybody and their mama is talented. There are people waiting on the sidelines for a breakthrough, for an opportunity. And actors aren't just having to audition against the people coming out of acting school or the people who just took one acting class and think they could act. They're having to audition against the, the, the social media stars and the music stars. There's a surplus of talent. People don't want to put up with difficult in the way that they used to. It's just not something that folks want. And if you don't think it's a real thing, Ask the Ellen DeGeneres show why their ratings are down and why they're getting all the bad press. You could be a rich white woman with an accomplished career, and if people have had enough of you, they will expose it and you will face the impact of it. Can we talk about someone else who I think was painted difficult inside ABC? We're going to talk about Shonda again, because I think this is a full circle moment. I knew Shonda left ABC. I knew she went to Netflix, and I didn't know why. Because I was like, how did ABC let her go? Like, she had three hit shows. Thursday nights were like, that was Shonda night. 
I was like, how did they not just develop whatever she wanted to do? Because clearly the woman makes hits. Shonda did this interview with Hollywood Reporter, and it was the first time that she's, she talked about her departure from ABC. You know, she already said that, you know, she was feeling like overwhelmed. She was doing a lot, but she was determined to push through because ABC was what people associated with her. ABC was her home. She was kind of comfortable, kind of not, but not comfortable enough to move. So I guess her sister, her sister and her sister's kids and their nanny were in town and they wanted all access passes to Disney World. Shonda called and said, hey, I know I've had some passes. Can I get a few more? And again, this is like their $2 billion brand. Shonda says, I want some more passes. And one of the execs, actually, they give her the passes. The sister gets to the park. The passes don't work. Shonda calls around to an exec and was like, hey, make this right, because my sister and the family are at the park. And the exec's response was, don't you have enough? So ma'am gathered her fabric, and she went over to a new home. And as we talked before, Netflix is, is treating her very well. She's the highest, yeah, she's the highest paid in the business. I think her deal is $300 million. She said that the, the, the numbers reported are inaccurate. She's making more than that. Oh. A Hollywood Reporter article is worth reading. And she talks about how she got up and she stood in this room of illustrious people, Ryan Murphy, all the who's who's of showrunners and executive producers, every, Lottie Dottie and everybody that is a big wig in Hollywood is in this room. And she said because she's an introvert and she's shy and she's never been one to own who she is and all that she has become. She finally stood in front of this room. She says, hi, my name is Shonda Rhimes, and I am the highest paid showrunner in all of Hollywood. And the room gave her a roaring standing ovation. She makes more money than anybody that's a showrunner or creative in Hollywood right now. And, and that the numbers that have been reported are inaccurate because they're lower than what she's actually getting. I love it. But yes. I think it was her sister was in town with her kids, and they were going to take Shonda's kid. You know, Shonda's got like two, two or three adopted children. It was like a big family gathering with Shonda, with the nanny and the kids and the sister. And a hundred and fifty-four dollar Disney pass. Yeah. Here's another piece of news that most people don't know. Before she entertained going to Netflix, Shonda Rhimes got very close to doing a deal at Viacom to create content for BET. She was going to leave ABC to go into the Viacom system. So the deal that Tyler Perry has now, which I hear is a uh, that he describes as a billion dollar content deal, is the deal that would have been Shonda Rhimes if she would have chosen to go there. So that also puts us in the, in the mindset of what some of the numbers could be for her Netflix deal. But she said she was really on the crossroads of what to do, where to go. She didn't like the grind of having to work at ABC anymore. It wasn't so much the personalities, but the, the approach to how she had to roll out the content and the structure of network TV was becoming challenging for her. She wanted to work at a different pace. Hadn't made a definitive decision until this high-ranking executive that she called to ask if he could fix this Disneyland problem in the way that you described uh, gave her pushback over a $154 ticket. And, and I love it that she used her power and said, you disrespected me because I have made this network so much money that the great, 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 great grandkids of anybody connected to a Disney era is going to live off of my shows and my content. You know, Grey's Anatomy has just stepped into the milestone of being the longest running medical drama on TV. And it's close to being like one of the longest running overall shows on TV. And so she's created this juggernaut and so many successful spinoffs. And you can't even honor me by making sure my Disney Fast Pass works fine. Yeah, I'm out of here. Peace out. Yeah. I love her for that. I love her for that. It's true power. And here's the thing. Hollywood is not a perfect industry. And, And for every Dave Chappelle and for every Shonda Rhimes that are making strides and that are in positions of power, there's still so much work to be done. And there are some real people in this business that face hardships and that have been discriminated against and that have been overlooked and are still trying to overcome. There aren't equal opportunities for talent of color in the way that we see our white counterparts get in this business. And so the the victories of a Shonda and the victories of a Dave Chappelle don't negate that there's still so much to be done. My only true concern is when you have people who try to hijack legitimate movements uh, like for women with Time's Up or Me Too or... Uh, 
for these movements to get uh, women of color and women in general equal pay in Hollywood, when you have people like Monique who try to leech on to legitimate movements and trying to use those movements to substantiate or validate their bad behavior that put them in that predicament, we have to be intentional about saying, no, you can't do that. You're not allowed to conflate these things and make them one. Because the truth of the matter is, there's going to be a black actress that has a real issue. She's not done anything wrong other than being black. And somebody's going to do something to discriminate against her. And we have to give our energies to those people. We can't give our energies to the people who had the mantle set before them and they came and kicked over the podium. And that's something that I just, I really want people to to stop buying into headlines and to clickbait and to these people's rants. I know we all are moved by a rant. It's, ooh, child, did you see such and such go off? We've got to stop being so enticed by that, that we validate these people's stories and we allow them to co-op legitimate causes because what it does is it, it makes it harder for people who are really fighting the good fight and trying to help people who have really been disenfranchised truly overcome. I think that's a great note to end this lovely conversation on, my friend. Listen, the doors of the church are open. Will there be one? Because <laughs> every time we do one of these, I feel like I preached a sermon. I'm about to... Go pour me a glass of something, because, you know, a good Baptist preacher always has a glass of something. Don't sir, sir, glass. sir. Okay, I'm, I'm going too far. Tis the season. I mean, you told the truth. You told the truth. Still. And I, I said this when I was here before with you. I want to say it again. I'm so proud of you. And you're both uh, a dynamic talent who's cultivated such an audience of vivacious, strong women who follow your platform. They're buying the hell out of those books of yours. I, I, I mean, you've become like a book manufacturing company over there. You know, <laughs> a, a great talent who still hasn't even kicked through the glass ceilings of all the things that you want to do. But even as a creative, you have these films and these projects and stuff coming. I mean, you're on track to, 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 to be an heir apparent to a Shonda Rhimes. And so I just want to honor you and celebrate you for all your hard work, for all the sacrifices, and for you being able to really have this unique gift of taking your real-life experiences, both the good ones and the bad ones, put them into your art and into your storytelling to inspire, to motivate, to cultivate conversation, and to make people think. It is a true gift, and I just can't wait to see you continue to show, soar using your gift. Thank you, friend. And listen, uh, there's going to be some women who ain't going to be happy with me today. They loved on me the last time. <laughs> Bring them back every week, Demetria. We want more of him. Listen, as Demetria so clearly articulated earlier, is that I'm one of those people that the facts defy uh, relation. My mama could put out a CD, and I would tell you I want her to want you to buy the CD because my mama put it out. But I'm also tell you that my mama can't say. Like the truth is just the truth. And so uh, while I've had an experience with a Monique, the facts of her story don't change because I ended up becoming a target in one of her attacks. While I have had interviews and Jenny Huber was very nice to me, the facts of that story and how we constructively analyzed it don't change because of the fact that I actually like her, despite all the things I've seen her do. And if we could get to a place where we realize that a lot of folks have opinions that don't align with us, and those of us who are have been graced with a front row seat in this bubble of an entertainment industry. Sometimes we know a lot more than the average person. It's okay to hear us, even if you still don't agree with anything that we said today, and know that it's not a personal attack on Monique or Janet Huber or anything. We're professionals providing uh, opinion, commentary, analysis on things we happen to just know a lot about. So I hope you enjoyed the show, even if some of you got frustrated. Friend, tell people where they can find you. If they, if they love your commentary, if they don't love your commentary, but where can they, where can they tune in to find more of you? Listen, holla at your boy. I'm John Murray. It's J-A-W-N-M-U-R-R-A-Y. That's on Instagram and Twitter and YouTube. And then you can also find me on Facebook. Uh, just put world at the end of my name. So J-A-W-N-M-U-R-R-A-Y, world. We can talk there. And Demetria has encouraged your boy that I need to be doing a podcast of my own. So y'all pray for me because I'm going to join in on the global yes, conversation yes, sometime yes. in 2021. Yes. I'm pushing myself to do it. I've, I've, I've dragged my feet way too long. 
But your girl is gonna mentor me through the process, and that's what real friendship is all about. Yo, I'm so excited. You didn't tell me this when we talked earlier. You didn't tell me we we're gonna do a podcast. I'm so excited. I, I can't told wait. You I, was, I was fishing for information. I was trying to understand how you work. That's what I'm working on. I'm trying to trying to get it together. So pray for me. As always, I'll add that to the list. Thank you, friend. All right. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Thank you, babe. All right, love you. Love you back. Bye-bye. Bye. Isn't he amazing? John is one of my favorite friends, and I'm so, so excited that he is finally doing a podcast. The last time he did Ratchet and Respectable, so many people reached out to him and was like, bruh, you need your own show. He was like, I'm an on-camera talent. I'm not a podcast talent. He's come around. Prayers have been answered. I cannot wait to listen to his podcast. So that is our episode for the week. I'm going to reiterate, I am dropping the Ratchet and Respectable merchandise next week. I will highly suggest that when it drops, you sign on at drop time. I ordered a bunch of stuff, but it may go quickly. Godspeed. Again, happy Thanksgiving. If you're listening to this after, I hope you had a wonderful, safe holiday weekend. Enjoy yourselves. And we'll talk again next week. Bye.